It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The mob attack of the U.S. Capitol building in January wasn't the country's first deadly rebellion. In 1787, a group of farmers and veterans angry over economic policies marched on a federal building in Massachusetts. The skirmish, known as Jay's Rebellion, made the country's founders question the strength of democracy. Today, the power of the internet is raising similar questions, says Stanford law professor Nate Persley. While you know the, the image of the mob that the framers had in mind was sort of torches and pitchforks, now it's clicks and screens. Can democracy survive an online era where conspiracy theories and disinformation breed emotional outrage? Persley speaks with National Constitution Center President and CEO Jeffrey Rosen. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Today's conversation is from Aspen Ideas Now. The insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th was mobilized on the Internet. Many of the activist groups involved in the march had been building enthusiasm online for years, reports Vox. They planned the attack on social media and live-streamed the destruction. It's a scenario America's founders never imagined. They created a democracy with protective barriers they thought would inhibit the ascendancy of mobs. But in an online environment, can reason eclipse passion? Nate Persley's legal scholarship focuses on American election law, or what's sometimes called the law of democracy. Jeffrey Rosen is a legal commentator and professor at the George Washington University Law School. Here's Rosen. Nate, it is so great to have the chance to talk with you about the founders, the mob, and the internet. Uh, We've seen a remarkable spectacle for the second time in American history, the Capitol has been attacked. And and this time the attack was organized uh, online. I want to begin with the founders' fear of mobs. Uh, As we both know, the the framers came to Philadelphia in 1787 because they had a particular mob in mind, Shays Rebellion, the farmers in Western Massachusetts who were mobbing the courthouses because they didn't want to pay their debts. And James Madison, uh, inflamed by that vision and by two trunks of books that Jefferson sent him from Paris about the failed democracies of of, uh, Greece and Rome, said in Federalist uh, 55, in all large assemblies of any character composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. So the founders designed the Constitution to slow down deliberation so that mobs or factions, which they defined as any group animated by passion rather than reason, devoted to self-interest rather than a common good, it could be a majority or a minority, um, it would be hard for them to organize if deliberation was slow and by the time they found each other, they'd get tired and go home. Obviously, the internet has challenged Madison's faith that the large size of America would make it hard for mobs to organize um, and to wreak their passionate will. And it's also undermined his faith that the principle of representation would filter popular passions into sober deliberation. You've studied uh, both the founding and constitutional history, and, and, and you're so uh, such a deep scholar of the behavior of online mobs. Um, was the mob on January 6th, to the degree that it organized and crystallized online, a vision of the founder's nightmare. Well, uh, thank you for having me. And it's wonderful uh, to be with you again. I I do think that what we are witnessing here is uh, sort of U.S. concerns about democracy coming full circle. 
um, while you know the the image of the mob that the framers had in mind was sort of torches and pitchforks, now it's clicks and screens. Uh, and we're noticing, as you said, that the loss of any kind of intermediation uh, between um, private sentiment and then sort of uh, potentially public violence uh, and, and, and an organization, as you're saying, w w uh, absent any filters, uh, is having its sort of modern form. Now, we are seeing both sort of offline activity that is uh, generating you know, this incitement. It's no accident that the um, insurrection happened as it was, it was mobilized online, but then of course the, the, the final sort of spark where, where actual live uh, you know, speech that was done adjacent to the Capitol. Nevertheless, I think that um, you, the, the basic gist of your point is right, which is that we have lost all of those kind of protective barriers that the, the founders thought would inhibit um, ascendancy of mobs uh, in our democracy. And, um, you know, even additional guardrails that succeeded the framers' time, such as the emergence of political parties, right, we're noticing that the party institutions are also not able to um, uh, control some of this uh, mob outrage. Uh, and it's particularly virulent uh, online where uh, anonymity is privileged and the, the speed at which people can communicate uh, uh, allows the possibility for, you know, rapid disinformation and coalition building of the type that you're talking about. Fascinating and, and, and disturbing. The founders had confidence that education and uh, virtue would help citizens cultivate their faculties of reason so they could be guided by reason rather than passion. But we're seeing online that the most highly educated people are among those falling prey to disinformation and conspiracy theories. The New York Times uh, recently ran a, a piece about a woman who went down the QAnon rabbit hole and became a conspiracy theorist. Remarkably, uh, she was a, a high school and college classmate of mine at a you know a, a, a fancy New York private school and 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 uh, and, and at Harvard, and she. Um, became a QAnon person, and she was radicalized online. And what, what's so interesting about the piece is that the, her radicalization seemed to have been stemmed by a combination of the validation that she got from all the Facebook likes whenever she posted more and more extreme posts, the platform architecture. She was initially led to QAnon from a yoga video, which recommended some more extreme stuff and the algorithms, first of YouTube, and then Facebook kept recommending more and more extreme material, which sent her down the rabbit hole. And also the, the platform architecture, uh, which put it in her news feeds and put it uh, top of uh, mind. Uh, again, you've studied this so deeply. I'd, I'd love you to describe this process of radicalization that can lead even the most educated people uh, down this rabbit hole. Um, and then begin to talk about what what the platforms are doing to try to combat this problem of algorithmic radicalization, including Facebook's decision most recently to really deprioritize political content on people's news So I think one of the things you're highlighting here is that there are what we call sort of affordances of the platforms and the internet, which interact with both modern and classic psychological phenomenon to then produce sort of new forms of psychopathology and political pathology, right? So that you have um, 
there are certain things that the platforms do, like algorithms that recommend certain types of content versus others. And there are certain things about the internet, such as um, the privileging of viral transfer of information and the speed at which information will travel, again, un unmediated by sort of elite filters. Um, and so the, the first thing is to say, well, even apart from the algorithms, what kinds of information online are able to get traction? Uh, and this would be, and, and one way we know this is that that even outside of the platforms that, that, that use algorithms, something like WhatsApp, particularly in the developing world or you know, outside the United States, um, we see some of the similar platforms. Now the move to these encrypted communities Right. That's a that's an important test case to to see, you know, how much is the algorithms versus how much is um, the architecture of the Internet where it's peer to peer communication. I make that point just to say that, you know, we see, you know, in viral communication in the, the types of um, uh, messages and content that goes viral, a privileging of certain types of emotional appeals, particularly outrage. Uh, but also the kind of conspiracy theories and the the um, types of things that you were referencing, whether it's QAnon or others, uh, then really are able to take hold in the online environment in ways that if it were face-to-face -face communication, um, it would be less likely to take hold. Some of that is because of anonymity and the fact that some kinds of um, communication are facilitated by the distance that our computers and our phones and technology provide. Uh, some of it is about the kind of unique organizing potential, particularly that these conspiracy groups and others, and, and I shouldn't say just conspiracy groups, those who prey on emotion, right? Those who are not necessarily engaging in the kind of rational discourse that you're talking about. Uh, but, but part of it is also that we do not have the kind of uh, signals in the online world that we have in the offline world related to things like credibility and the progeny of information and the like. And so we mix entertainment on the one hand with information and news and the like uh, in a way that then allows someone who, as you were saying, starts with a yoga video and then ends up in a QAnon chat group, right? And so that's the kind of thing that would be much less likely to happen uh, in the offline world because of, you know, physical barriers and the like. All right, so now let's talk about the platforms themselves and, and the um, ways that they lead toward radicalization and then the, what they've done. You know, each platform that of concern that people point to are, uh, you know, when you talk about algorithms, you have the the recommendation system of YouTube, you have the news feed hierarchy in both Facebook uh, and Twitter, and the question is, is our Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube feeding you the kind of material that then is going to, for one reason or another, radicalize you or push you toward, toward extremes? And so as uh, Zainab Tufeci at UNC sometimes describes it, well, you start with uh, vegetarianism uh, as a video and you end up in veganism. You start with conservatism and you end up in an alt-right uh, echo chamber, or you know, in these cases, yoga to QAnon, or something like that. And so, the the there's definitely um, evidence that sometimes this happens. One of the problems is we don't really know, particularly on YouTube, which is in many ways the most opaque platform. Um, we don't we don't really know 
the, the pathway to radicalization and how often it happens. We know it does happen, uh, but one thing, you know, as we think about reforms that would be really critical here is to open up the YouTube algorithm and the recommendation system so that outside researchers can figure out uh, how ubiquitous it is. I will tell you that the people at YouTube say that they have, um, you know, uh, at least in the political arena, tried to reduce radicalization. There's a whole project at, at Jigsaw, which is sort of the think tank um, related to Google, where they have tried to do something called Project Redirect, but that's particularly with respect to terrorism content to try to redirect people away from the kind of sewers of the internet. Nevertheless, they exist out there. Um, and, and there is a, one of the real challenges here is to, Think about um, both amplification on the one hand and radicalization on the other. All right. So, so your friend who is looking at a yoga video is not otherwise going to stumble on QAnon videos in her life, right? And so one of the real worries about I think the the major platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and the like, is that they, they do provide a pathway toward amplification of those messages that are particularly dangerous, whether they're from conspiracy sites or otherwise. Then you have the radicalizing potential, which could happen you know, in, uh, in Facebook groups, in, uh, in um, YouTube and the like, but it also now is happening on these less famous platforms, whether they were Parler, whether you go to 4chan and the like, where these then become closed communities and once you're in one of those communities, it, you're pretty much gone, right? That, that's not an area where any of the major platforms are going to be able to, to sort of bring you back. Um, but they've they've seeded the pathway to some of those more extreme environments. And, and that's where we see the kind of planning for offline violence uh, and the radicalization that we saw at the Capitol uh, and the like. Um, all that is... Uh deeply interesting and also deeply disturbing because it does not seem, of course, like there's a simple technological or algorithmic fix to this deeply uh, challenging um, problem. I, I'd love you to say one more um, beat about what uh, you mentioned, uh, modern psychology, and also uh, I wonder what moral philosophy can teach us about this problem. The founders are centrally concerned with the question of uh, human understanding. And when Jefferson wrote about the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence, he had in mind not feeling good, but being good, namely virtue, which the founders mm -hmm. defined following the ancient model as efforts to use our powers of reason to uh, master our unreasonable or selfish passions like hatred, anger, jealousy, ambition, avarice, and fear. There was a lively debate among the Enlightenment philosophers who inspired the framers about whether or not our reason could tame our passions. The standard um, position from Locke and Francis Hutcheson was, was yes, if we just have enough time to deliberate, then we can take a deep breath and, and not be guided by our immediate unreasonable emotions or desires. Um, then uh, David Hume comes along and says, in fact, uh, reason is the slave of passion. We're, we're driven by our feelings that if, which that affects our reality or our internal world. And our reason may affect the way we think about our feelings and may allow us to um, uh, experience them in a different light but that we're not able uh, using abstract ideas of truth or falsehood 
to identify the truth, because ultimately that's a matter of sensation and experience. I found that so resonant, and I just wondered if that set off any uh, thoughts uh, based on your extensive research about the difficult task of, of, of human beings agreeing on a common conception of the truth when our notion of the truth is so affected by our uh, external uh, sensations and emotions and whether that framework uh, in any way points away toward any solutions. Well, I, I agree with that. And I think that just to, to uh, bring the history up a little bit that, you know, I think that the framers in many ways uh, had insights that we have ignored for some time. Well, it, it ignored because we disagreed with them. And assume, we assumed, I think, that reason at, at a kind of mass scale would ultimately win out. Uh, and, and that is because we believed in the marketplace of ideas metaphor, which postdates right, the, these, um, uh, the framers. And so in many ways, we are children of Oliver Wendell Holmes, right, more than we are of uh, Jefferson and Madison. And I think that, you know, it is still the case, and this is certainly the ideology of Silicon Valley, that thought is, well, hey, if we just have more speakers, then it's more likely that the, the truth will win out. Whereas I think the evidence in the last few years, if not longer, is suggesting, particularly in the online env environment, but maybe not only that, that um, that appeals to passion, appeals to these other more base psychological impulses um, actually can be more important. And that you, in a competition between reason on the one hand and passion on the other, um, that you're going to end up uh, with passion often winning for a lot of people, uh, and it could have a pretty uh, big impact. And related to that, the, the thing I want to, to emphasize here is that um, because one of the things that the that the online environment does again is it merges all communication together. There, the, the framers and and others that we we're just discussing sort of assume that there is a forum for reasoned deliberation about particular types of issues. Whereas you know the internet is not like one forum; it is just this you know huge brawl in which. Whether it's you know on Facebook you're seeing um, you know videos of your son's graduation, uh, or you're going to see an ad for a particular product, or an op-ed in the New York Times, or a Breitbart article, or a QAnon sort of conspiracy theory—they're all pretty much packaged the same and coming at you at the same time. It's a very different kind of information environment than the kind of curated view that whether it's the you know, 18th century or late 19th century that, that we had. Uh, one thing I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't address before, which was just, you sort of asked before, what, what can we do about it? What are the platforms doing about it? And um, you know, the answer is that you know, it requires that the algorithms be tweaked to, to um, try to take account in, particularly in the election situation, um, for how these kind of passionate and uh, you know base motivations, how how prominent they are in people's news feeds and the like, I think unfortunately one thing that we're seeing is it is the most heavy-handed approaches by the platforms, whether it's deplatforming on the one hand or shadow banning on the others, which do have the biggest impact. I sort of wish that weren't the case, but they, they do have uh, you know, quite a, a, a big impact in terms of people's receptivity to those, um, to those messages. It doesn't stop the, hard, the true believers because the true believers will always find a place 
uh, on the internet to have the, these kinds of chats and, and to become further radicalized, but it can downplay the amplification of those messages to people who otherwise might be on the fence. Um, absolutely fascinating. Um, you mentioned uh, deplatforming. Let's talk about the deplatforming and uh, ban from Twitter of President Trump. Here I'll say what I think about this very difficult question. My instinct has long been that although the platforms are not government actors and therefore are not formally bound by the First Amendment, they should broadly uh, accept the principles and values of the First Amendment, which, as we know, are extraordinarily rigorous. And the Supreme Court has said that uh, if you're a government actor, you can't ban speech unless it's directed to and likely to incite imminent lawless action or violence. Now, I'm going to venture that it's, it's, a, it's a difficult legal case about whether President Trump's single uh, statements on the Washington Mall can meet the legal test for incitement. There's a, there's a case on both sides, but it's a very high standard, and, and you could argue it uh, both ways. On one hand, he said, we got to go fight. On the other hand, he said, let's be peaceful and so forth. Um, I, so, but the platforms haven't come close to adopting an incitement standard. They allow the banning of speakers who engage in hate speech, which includes um, speech demeaning people on the basis of race, ethnicity, uh, religion, and other protected characteristics. Now, just to flag the fact that the Facebook, uh, the new Supreme Court, or the, as it's called, the, the new advisory board that, that Facebook has created, um, is about to review Facebook's decision to ban President Trump. And my understanding, and, and uh, help me out of the back of this case, um, is that Facebook has uh, initially made a decision permanently to ban President Trump. And one of the questions that the board will decide is whether a permanent ban is appropriate. I, I, if, of course, it's generally not a good idea to uh, uh, form an opinion before you've looked at the arguments on both sides and looked carefully at the facts. And, and this is an instinct, not a, a hard and fast view. But my instinct is that lifetime bans of anyone, let alone public figures, from any of these major platforms are disproportionate. In the, in the old world, when Eugene V. Debs stood on a soapbox and denounced World War I and was wrongly jailed for criticizing the war because the court hadn't yet adopted the incitement standard and actually ran for uh, president from a jail cell on the socialist ticket in 1920. Nevertheless, he eventually got out of jail, thank goodness, and was able to speak again. By contrast, a permanent ban essentially denies you access to the ability to speak forever. It seems like there's a, a decent argument anyway for this uh, review board that e even if a temporary ban was necessary because there actually was an imminent threat given the totality of uh, reactions to President Trump's tweets or posts, that a lifetime ban would be too much. Uh, your thoughts on this very complicated and difficult question. So let, let me talk about the the causes of the deplatforming and then um, what might happen with the oversight board and, and the like. Um, and, and start with your antecedent point, which is the um, the First Amendment and uh, community standards. So all of the community standards of the major platforms, if they were legislated by government, government would violate the First Amendment. 
Um, that's true with hate speech. That's true with the uh, obscenity. That's true with incitement, true with bullying um, and the like. And so so there and for that matter, their advertising policies, right, would, would also violate uh, if they were issued by government. Um, and so there is a very, you know, we've, we've had this discussion before um, that I think that when we, when we say that First Amendment values should influence um, platform policies, we got to be specific. We, we can't say the First Amendment. We have to say, well, what is it about sort of either the jurisprudence or the kind of gestalt of the First Amendment that should influence uh, platforms. And so, for example, one of those things would be uh, political neutrality, viewpoint neutrality. Um, um, we have to be very specific there about what we mean about viewpoint neutrality. You know, does it apply to ISIS? Does it apply to um, uh, QAnon and the like? Um, um, but it's maybe some, at least if we're talking about nonpartisanship, um, um, particularly in the electoral context, that that might be a, an important value, particularly given the fact that these are speech monopolies, right? So that that um, for Facebook, there would be different rules that we would apply to Facebook, Google, and Twitter than we might apply to Gab, that we apply to, you know, a, a, a given website and the like. So, so just putting that, that in front, I, I do think these are very complicated questions as to which types of First Amendment values you would uh, have influence. But but we share kind of I think where the end point might be on that. On incitement, now this is a really difficult problem. Um, and and one of the things that's interesting in the most recent decisions that have come down from the Facebook Oversight Board is they they actually dealt with what is kind of their incitement rule and that has to and that came up in the context of covid disinformation where they asked the question whether this uh french post that dealt with hydroxychloroquine whether that could be taken off because of leading to uh, offline harm um that's the same policy by the way that they would you i mean th th that uh, that's among the other reasons that they would deal with, say, insurrection type activity as well as terrorist groups uh, and the like. They also have a kind of dangerous individuals and groups uh, policy that might lead to uh, the takedown. Let, let me start with the, the, Twitter and Facebook actually had different ways of approaching this problem. I don't want to get into the weeds, but just to add support to your general point about how the, how distant the causes of the takedown were from what would be protected under the First Amendment. Let me just refer to what the Twitter uh, uh, explanation for the for the deplatforming was. The, the 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 straw that broke the camel's back for Twitter were two tweets. One of which was. 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first and make America great again, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape or form. That tweet plus uh, a second one, to all those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. All right, those two tweets that I just mentioned are not even close to incitement, right, by any definition. Um, what Twitter then says is that the way that these were perceived by the user community uh, actually um, is what leads led to the deplatforming because, as they say, uh, to quote their their statement, the the fact that he says he's not going to attend the inauguration inauguration is being received by a number of his supporters as further confirmation that the election was not legitimate and that there won't be an orderly transition of power. Now that analysis is so far removed not just from U.S. jurisprudence on this, frankly, but even if you look at the incitement jurisprudence that even in, in more restrictive countries like in, in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, and so 
it, you really do think there is a set of rules that are applying to Donald Trump, given the, you know, years of tweeting and Facebook posts, and they're trying to grasp for what is it that ultimately made the difference. And as you say, it was the fact that it led to offline violence that then, you, you know, in some ways, it's not that it was a clear and present, that it's now a clear and present danger. It's that they missed the opportunity when it was a clear and present danger right before the insurrection. And so they're kind of playing mop up afterwards. It may, it may be that, that the, um, you know, that the continuing voicing of, of some of the conspiracy theories and election fraud and the like also would lead to um, continued violence. Um, but, you know, it, it is very hard to square with the, the way we think about this under the First Amendment. All right. So now, so then what, what do we think about the lifetime ban and what do I think the oversight board is going to do? So in four of the five most recent cases um, of the appeals to the Facebook oversight board, they overturned Facebook and thought that it was wrong to take down the content. Um, we, you know, it's, it's a small sample. We don't want to read too much into it. Uh, but I think that they are going in a somewhat more libertarian direction than a lot of people may have thought. Um, I would not be surprised if they follow the position that you articulated, which is not allowing for a lifetime ban, but coming up with some kind of compromise position that would um, um, allow for Trump to be put back on the platform in certain circumstances. The really difficult problem for the oversight board, and that for that matter, conceptually for all of us, is what are the right rules for these big American platforms to take when it comes to the speech of world leaders? Because the precedent that the president that they've now set with President Trump is going to be one that they're going to have to apply to Bolsonaro and to Modi and to Duterte. And you know, it's what it's it, as bad as it may be seen to you know a liberal Silicon Valley, you know, a somewhat liberal uh, Silicon Valley co company uh, censoring the president of the United States. Uh, to have American companies start doing that for the leaders of other countries and seemingly to tip their elections is going to raise even more uh, and greater concerns. Uh, wow. Uh, very difficult, as you say. Important to come up with neutral uh, principles, of course, and precedents that can be applied globally and that don't seem to be singling out uh, certain leaders in a content-based way. Um, next, I must ask more broadly, uh, what you think of the idea of Supreme Courts for the platforms. It's a natural impulse to um, create independent uh, bodies to review speech decisions. Um, there's also a desire to uh, avoid total responsibility for these decisions. You know, it was the advisory board that made me do it, if they have to let them back on. And uh, no doubt the uh, board was assembled in good faith and has uh, distinguished people on it. Um, I must say that um, although it'll, it's, it's certainly a worthwhile experiment to an extraordinarily challenging speech problem that has no clear answer, I'm not confident that the oversight board model will check the overwhelming pressure that we're seeing from uh, governments, uh, consumers, and indeed employees of the platforms around the globe that are increasingly favoring the restriction of speech. I, I began writing about this subject more than a decade ago and the kind of libertarian speech must be free. Today, I would say that uh, they're, they're not shying from the 
uh, call by uh, many consumers and world leaders that they do more uh, speech uh, regulation. And I am concerned as an advocate of the uh, classical liberal position on the First Amendment embraced by the framers, that the uh, bowing to this pressure, the, the net may increasingly become like an anodyne shopping mall where the platforms are taking it upon themselves to review and, and to restrict more and more content, even if they're not forced to do so by uh, the reform of uh, 230 immunity and the like. Uh, your thoughts? So I think that that is um, generally right, that in the last year, we've seen a move toward greater regulation of content on the platform. Um, I have a theory about why that is, uh, and it's not merely uh, one driven by President Trump. Um, I think that the the COVID environment actually led to experimentation with certain types of interventions that previously might have been seen as out of bounds. And so that when um, the, the issue was public health, um, then, uh, you know, disinformation and protecting people from offline harm then became uh areas where the platforms felt, well, it's not as partisan, it doesn't raise the same kind of hackles. And so therefore, um, we will do all kinds of takedowns, we will do all kinds of labeling uh, and the like. Once that precedent was set, then they, they were put in the position, well, if you can do it in that context, why can't you do it for politics? Why can't you do it in the in, the, in elections? And, and I think in the end, they're like, well, yeah, I guess, you know, we should do it. Now, they were going to do a lot more um, this year anyway, because of the experience with the 2016 election. And so whether it was on advertising or more fact-checking, there, there was going to be more. I think that it that the COVID environment, though, turbocharged things uh, so that they were, that the constituencies in the firm uh, that were pushing this direction uh, did win out. Um, you do see a shift in Mark Zuckerberg's thinking uh, in particular from his speech that he gave at Georgetown University, which was sort of you know, singing New York Times versus Sullivan and 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 other classic First Amendment precedents to what then seemed to be an evolution as we, you know, whether it was on Holocaust denial or on um, on, on deplatforming of Trump. So, so I do think there's there's that story there. Um, the uh, on, with respect to the Oversight Board and Supreme Courts and the like, we need many different experiments like this happening right now. No one knows what the right answer is to both have some outside source of accountability for these multi-billion profit-making, you know, American corporations and to make sure that, that um, you know, there is democratic legitimacy and uh, protection for free expression, right? And so uh, you are right that the, the firms, I think, are going to be responsive to these market pressures, market pressures writ large, which is to say the European Commission, uh, the Singapore Enforcement Authority, and um, their employees and, and users, most of whom are pushing for greater regulation. Um, but the, and, and, and so they're grasping about. Now, part of the story here, though, is the complete abdication of responsibility by governments because they, they when they actually put pen to paper, they realize how difficult it is to come up with a speech control regime that will deal with everything from COVID misinformation to election manipulation to, uh, you know, obscenity and the rest. And so therefore, their politicians in general are more likely to just blame the platforms and tell them, you know, to, to 
you have to deal with this and maybe you will be liable if you don't deal with it in the right way, whatever the right way is, um, instead of actually making the hard choices. So my view is that, that the Facebook Oversight Board is an absolutely critical experiment that will be a, that we should look to um, more as a kind of signaling function as to what is possible in this area. Because look, the Facebook Oversight Board has just issued decisions in five cases. It's got about eight cases on its docket. That's out of 150,000 appeals that were lodged in the last month, right? So it, it like pales in comparison even to the, you know, what what the, like the Supreme Court um, looks like um, a, a, a sort of minor league team as compared to what the Facebook uh, Oversight Board potentially has within its jurisdiction. And so we have no idea where this institution is going to go, how significant it's going to be for Facebook, whether it's going to make a big difference, how libertarian versus regulatory it's going to be, whether it'll be captured by Facebook and the like. But I at least am one who wants to put wind behind the sails of institutions like this because we are grasping about for models as to how we're going to protect speech online. Um, fascinating. I keep saying fascinating, uh, not just to affirm your points, but because it is, and I'm learning uh, so much, as I always do. Um, I think this is the time as we begin to wrap up uh, to talk about solutions, which are always the most difficult. We've identified a few already. National Constitution Center has started up a guardrails of democracy initiative where we're convening thought leaders uh, like you and others to identify technological, constitutional, and legal ways of resurrecting the Madisonian deliberation that the framers thought would avoid passionate mob rule. So uh, among the things we've talked about are relatively modest interventions like not putting political content high on news feeds or tweaking the algorithm so they don't recommend the most extreme content. Larry Kramer from the Hewlett Foundation in a, in a recent uh, NCC discussion talked about ways of just making it harder to reach the extreme links. You'd, rather than linking to it, you'd have to cut and paste them rather than clicking immediately. So forms of stickiness in the algorithmic referrals. Um, but but these uh, seem like modest interventions. Indeed, you, you've been thinking uh, very deeply about possible interventions along these lines. Please uh, tell me, because I'm so eager to hear them. If you had to list, I don't know, top four or five uh, interventions that would resurrect the guardrails and resurrect Madisonian liberation on the net, what would, what would some ideas be? So there, there is, I think, a distinction between content moderation on the one hand and necessary and, and trying to further uh, democratic deliberation on the other. Uh, I have a, a, a report I wrote for the Kofi Annan Foundation on the former. Uh, one of the things, you know, on content moderation, I like to talk about the eight eight D's. Unfortunately, it's eight. Uh, which is too much, but it's it's a deletion of content, right? Takedowns like what we've seen, uh, um, uh, disclosure, right? Where you give information about the source and the like, um, uh, delay of content where you put tripwires on the internet so that that stuff doesn't achieve virality as quickly. Um, the dilution of content by making sure that people um, are, uh, uh, are are inundated with good information, right? That part, if you believe in the marketplace of ideas, you try to uh, make sure that there's better information. And you saw this with, with the platforms when they tried to put facts about voting 
next to uh, stuff that was seen as, as disinformation. Uh, in addition, demotion. Of course, the algorithms are quite critical here. And so how you decide what goes at the top of a newsfeed and what goes at the bottom is, is really quite critical. And then, as I said before, diversion of uh, people's attention away from the more problematic content. This is something that, that um, YouTube has done with terrorist content and, and the like. Um, and then just classic modes of deterrence, uh, going after the real bad actors on the internet. I, I am of the view that most of the problem is caused by less or than 5% of viewers, views of users and finding out who those people are and then addressing their speech, um, some of which is, is for profit-making reasons. Uh, is is something that that can be done uh, and that the the platforms are aware of. Finally, is is digital literacy, and you know we all um, turn to education to try to solve all of our problems. But I think we all know that this has to be a kind of uh, permanent part of the curriculum for uh, kids growing up. Now, now all of that, a, a lot, of, some of that can be done by governments. The stuff that I was talking about, some of it can be done uh, by platforms uh, to address uh, content online. Now, the problems in terms of democratic deliberation, though, uh, extend beyond the Internet, right? And um, there are American institutions, whether it's the legacy media or the new media, have failed uh, to produce democratic uh, deliberation and other institutions like political parties. Uh, and so in my other life as an election administration and election reform person, I'm really thinking about institutional reform that might be able to embolden moderates to try to uh, foster reasoned decision-making in ways that we haven't seen uh, in the last few years. Uh, superb. Well, for both of those reasons, um, your thoughtful interventions about content moderation, uh, which include, as you uh, say, uh, education as a central component, as well as uh, democratic deliberation, which can include uh, electoral reform, would love to get you involved in this uh, National Constitution Center guardrails of democracy initiative. Um, I believe that the kind of conversation that we are having is a central part of the solution. We're both modeling uh, civil dialogue and deliberation. And of course, the folks who are taking the time to listen to us are, in, are educating themselves about these complicated issues. We're exploring the arguments on both sides. Uh, we are teaching people to separate their policy views from their constitutional views, constitutional in the sense of constituting the, the rules of discussion, regardless of what policy outcome may favor. Um, and that's why we are taking up the founders' um, charge that uh, democracy cannot survive ignorant and free, as, as Jefferson so memorably said. And without without virtue defined as self-government, government of the self, government of our selfish passions, hatreds, jealousies, and angers so that we can achieve selfless service, compassion, empathy, concern for others, and devotion to the public good, the experiment uh, won't work. Um, so I'm so grateful to you, Nate. I always learn so much from our conversations and grateful to the Aspen Institute for convening us, uh, Aspen's uh, commitment to exploring important questions of democracy and society is uh, invaluable. And uh, I know uh, we're both uh, very grateful to have been given this chance to have the conversation. So thanks so much. Thank you. And thank you to the Aspen Institute. 
Law professor Nate Persily helped craft legislative districting plans for several states as a court-appointed expert. He also served as a senior research director for the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Jeffrey Rosen is the author of half a dozen books. His most recent is Conversations with RBG, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Life, Love, Liberty, and Law. Rosen's and Persily's conversation was held in late January 2021. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Find more conversations on our website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.